Now, I think it's fair to say that most of us want to live a blessed life. You know, we want to experience and enjoy good things, and we want to celebrate them. If you search the hashtag blessed in Instagram, it will give you over 151 million posts. There's a lot of blessed moments out there that people want to share. And what makes people feel so blessed that they want to share it with the world? Well, it's all sorts of things. You know, at this time of year, there's been you know, lots of family gatherings, holiday snapshots, sunsets over the sea, relaxing with a book in a hammock, that kind of thing. Uh, it could be celebrating with your dad on Father's Day. Uh, it could be the birth of a baby that you want to share and you know, say you feel so blessed. It might be a new car. Um, some people even feel so blessed by their new fry pan that they just need to share it with the world. Hashtag blessed. Now, quite understandably, we, we celebrate the things in life that bring us joy and excite us. Uh, and it's a good instinct to see such things as a blessing. Now, I'm sure lots of people are using the term without really thinking about it, without necessarily appreciating God as the, the giver of such things, but it does imply that they at least recognize that what they're experiencing is, is a gift in some sense. It's far better, isn't it, to go through life counting your blessings uh, rather than just whinging and complaining and expecting luxuries served to you on a platter. But if this, is, if this kind of stuff, if that's all we give thanks for, if those kinds of things are all we really count as our blessings, well, then we're missing out because there is a far greater blessing worth seeking and celebrating. Psalm 32 that we just read out, uh, Mary read out for us a moment ago, it's a piece of poetry written around 3,000 years ago by the Israelite king David. Uh, and through it, he invites us to celebrate the incredible blessing of having our sin washed away, having our slate wiped clean before God and enjoying fellowship with him as a result. And this psalm, it reminds us that the only way to experience this blessing is by owning and confessing our sin before God, rather than trying to hide it and pretend that everything is okay. When we're weighed down by our guilt, even the most beautiful sunsets can seem drab, and the food that we wanted to show off to the world, well, it you know, can seem bitter. So Psalm 32 is an opportunity to refocus on what's truly precious and good, to celebrate the true blessing of forgiveness, and to embrace the wisdom of confessing our sin before God so that we might enjoy that forgiveness. In verses 1 and 2, uh, right at the start, David presents the key theme of this psalm, the blessing of enjoying God's gracious forgiveness. Blessed is the one, he writes, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. The core idea of this psalm is to recognize and celebrate how good it is to have our sins forgiven and washed away. And he uses three phrases to fully convey from different angles the idea of God making our sin go away. Uh, forgiveness of transgressions, sins covered, and iniquity, which is translated um, as sin again in the NIV that we've read, but iniquity not counted against us. Now, transgression is the idea of breaking a command and the relational breakdown that can result from that. Uh, you might transgress against a friend by sharing something private, something that they shared in confidence with you, 
and then you go and share that publicly. You're transgressing against them. You've broken the code of acceptable behavior. You've broken trust with them as a result. You've hurt your friend. You've hurt the relationship. And we break trust with God by rebelling against his commands, against his authority, and it alienates us from him. And when our transgression remains unforgiven, it means we're stuck in that relational breakdown. And so how good is it, says David, to have your transgressions forgiven? The, the offended party graciously opens their arms and draws you back in. It's okay, you're forgiven, let's forget about it, let's move on. How good is that? Now, sin, it's the most general biblical term to describe our wrongdoings and, um, and the way we generally offend God by failing to live as he created us to live. A man might sin against his wife by being unkind and ungrateful and failing to love her as he should. He's sinning against her. You might sin against a friend in a subtle, minor way by calling them on their birthday and asking them for a favour never even saying happy birthday because you've completely forgotten about them. You're kind of missing the mark of what you know, might look like to be a good friend there. And of course, we sin against each other in much more significant ways, don't we? The book of Romans says that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark of what it means to be human, to live in the image of God. And how good is it, says David, to have our sins covered over? To have your shameful failings and everything that's so wrong about you covered over so that you don't have to try and hide who you are because your sin is gone. And finally, iniquity, uh, which, uh, as I said, it's just translated sin again in the NIV, in verse 2, it emphasizes our crookedness. See, things are meant to be a certain way. We're meant to live and relate in a, a certain way according to God. But we've, we've bent ourselves, we've We've distorted our conscience and our world out of shape through a disregard for God's good wisdom and his authority. And we've actually preserved this sense of the word in English. Uh, I don't know if it's there in Chinese, but we have this term crook for a criminal. Uh, so, for example, we might say that um, a dodgy used car salesman is a crook if they sell you, um, you know, a car that's got all sorts of problems and they pretend that it, it's fine. They're a crook. And the Bible says that our iniquities, our crooked ways, they weigh us down and they'll bring about our ruin in the end. How good is it, says David, when God doesn't count this sin, this iniquity, against us? How blessed are we when God wipes the slate clean and considers us to be upright instead of crooked? Now, of course, there's lots of overlap between these words and ideas. And David's really just using these three different words and phrases to build up a big, full picture of our desperate, fallen state, and thus how great a blessing it is to have it all cleaned up, forgiven and covered in every sense. This is truly being hashtag blessed. This is, this is worth singing about, says David. That's why in the very last verse of the psalm, David exclaims, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. Now, he hasn't suddenly turned his attention away from sinners who enjoy God's forgiveness to now talking to perfectly righteous people who don't need to be forgiven, you upright in heart. Now he's speaking to those who are righteous and upright in heart because they've had their transgressions and their sin forgiven and removed. 
That's how amazing the blessing of forgiveness is. Though we are sinners, we are counted righteous. That's why we we sing and shout for joy. As Paul explains in Romans chapter 4, he's quoting from this very psalm, the blessing of forgiveness is the blessing of God considering you righteous apart from work, apart from what you may or may not have done. It's a blessing made possible through Jesus, through his death and resurrection. It's possible because of the gracious, generous love of God. You see, the forgiven sinner is no longer defined by their sin. They are righteous in God's sight. That's the incredible blessing being celebrated in this psalm. But of course, to truly appreciate this as a great blessing, we need to be convinced we need this forgiveness, don't we? If we don't see ourselves as sinners, or if we trivialize sin or its consequences, we won't see forgiveness as such an amazing blessing. We might see this blessing as just another product being advertised to us that we don't really need. Like, you know, someone trying to convince you that, um, you know, you thought knives were good enough to slice bananas, but no, you need this banana slicer. That will make your life complete. No, forgiveness, forgiveness of our sin is no banana slicer. It's more like a cure for someone with a terminal illness. It's something we desperately need. And so someone who brushes off God's forgiveness uh, of their sin as something they don't really need, that's like someone who turns down a cure for a terminal illness because they don't really think they're sick. The reality is that we are hopelessly sinful. Our, Our lives really are littered with examples of transgression. Our hearts and minds really are corrupted and crooked with selfish desires and impulses. You see, the Bible's diagnosis of us human beings is much more in touch with reality than the idealistic view that all people are essentially good. And the Bible is deadly serious that if this sin and transgression is not dealt with, if we don't somehow secure forgiveness from God, we face the terrible reality of his judgment. Denying these realities will prevent us from appreciating what a profound blessing forgiveness is. It will prevent us from receiving that forgiveness. And that's why David remarks at the end of verse 2, blessed is the one in whose spirit is no deceit. He's not saying this blessing is only available for pure people. That wouldn't really make sense of what he's just said. No, those without deceit are those who see themselves for who they really are and they admit it to God. They don't pretend. And that's what he goes on to share about the need to confess our sin openly before God rather than hide it and pretend that everything is okay. So the rest of the psalm, from verses 3 to 10, um, before he comes back to that, that summary call to rejoice and celebrate in the Lord, the rest of the psalm is essentially a call to seek this blessing by humbly and openly confessing our sin before God rather than stubbornly resisting and trying to hide it. And first of all, he does this by sharing from his own experience the folly of resisting confession, uh, and then the relief of finally confessing his sin before God and enjoying his wonderful forgiveness. So in verses 3 and 4, David shares, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. 
He's describing how guilt, it eats away at us. And it affects us not just spiritually, uh, and not even just emotionally, but physically. David points out 3,000 years ago what psychologists have been telling us over the last 100 years, that bottling up your guilt is bad for you. David describes his experience of trying to ignore his sin by keeping silent as if God's hand is pressing heavily upon him. The, the, the guilt builds up like a dam filling with water until the pressure becomes almost too much. You get to a point where you, you either burst and confess or you, or you sear your conscience and, and your soul begins to wither inside you to protect you from feeling the reality of your situation. You can't handle feeling like that anymore. And that would be a pretty sad mistake, wouldn't it? You see, the pain and discomfort, it's obviously trying to tell us something. And we're meant to take note and respond. We're meant to, to hear the message and come to God in humble confession rather than push it back down, numbing our conscience against the effects of our sin. When we touch a hot pan right out of the oven without thinking, I don't, I've definitely done that before, I don't know if you have, but that, that searing pain that we feel immediately, it's telling you something very important to pull your hand away. Likewise, the way unconfessed sin can weigh us down, it can sap our strength, leaving life empty and bitter, it's a message telling us to stop ignoring the reality, to confess, to come to God. But unfortunately, our natural instinct seems to be to try to protect ourselves by hiding our sin from others and even hiding it from God. The children don't need to be taught to, uh, how to try to hide the fact that they've done something wrong. Just like Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden. Our instinct is to hide from God out of shame for what we've done. And when questioned, to just pass on the blame to someone else. We make the mistake again and again of thinking we can protect ourselves from the shame of being exposed for who we really are by covering up our sin and pretending it's not there. But trying to cover it up has consequences. Either we will wallow under the burden of our unconfessed sin, or we will ultimately pay the price for it, uh, even if we manage to live with our guilt in the meantime. And so the solution is, is really so obvious, isn't it? Come to God and confess. David shares from verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Rather than continue to cover it all up, he acknowledges his sin to God. He owns his transgressions, confesses them to the Lord. Did you notice that David uses all those three words again uh, that he used earlier to reflect the full and open confession of his moral failure before God? And the simple, beautiful result is that God forgives him, takes away his guilt. He lifts up, carries away the consequences of his sin. And after the description of the groaning and the burden he was under when he tried to cover up his sin, this pronouncement of forgiveness, it, it brings great relief, like that dam bursting and the floods dissipating. As I shared in the kids' talk, if you're here, it's like the relief I felt on Beach Mission when I, I finally allowed that uh, lady to pierce my infected toe. A, a relief after trying to cover it up. It was overwhelming. 
We don't want to ignore sin and let it build up like an infection, making things worse and worse. We want to come to God and confess and let the guilt wash away. Now, I don't know if you noticed the the connection, almost the irony between verses 1 and 5. You see, we try to protect ourselves by covering up our sin and iniquity, which never actually works. But when we do finally acknowledge our sin and stop covering it up, in verse 5, well, that's when God actually does cover over our sin. From what we read about in verse 1. See, it's counterintuitive because we have to go through the risk of exposing ourselves for who we really are, owning our failures, our selfishness, and our weakness. But this is the only real path to finding freedom from shame. As we uncover the true state of our hearts before God, He graciously covers over the darkness with His grace and His mercy. In fact, As David goes on to describe in verse 7, once we stop trying to hide from God, he actually becomes our hiding place. You see, rather than hide ourselves from God, we hide ourselves in God. That's a profound blessing of confession and forgiveness. Now, many of you would know this, I think, from just relationships with other people. When we've wronged someone, our instinct is to try to protect ourselves from shame by hiding our feelings and and denying them. But that kind of acceptance, it's, it's hollow and false. It eats away at the relationship. It's only when we acknowledge our sin, when we admit what we've done, and hopefully the person graciously forgives us, that we truly find the acceptance and the safety in that relationship that we're really looking for. It's the same with God trying to pretend everything is okay, it's a complete waste of time. It will only lead to further pain and alienation. True relief and acceptance, it only comes from exposing ourselves for who we really are before God and throwing ourselves on his mercy. So I think it's worth appreciating the connection between our willingness to admit our failings to each other, especially to those that we've sinned against, and the reality of confessing our sin to God. See, David here is primarily urging us to acknowledge our sin to God as the one that we have ultimately sinned against. But more often than not, our sin has affected someone else as well. It's been expressed in some failure to, rely, to relate rightly to the people around us. And if you think that you're openly confessing your sin to God, you're really owning your sin before God, but you're never willing to admit to another person how you've sinned against them or against someone else, well, it would have to make you question just how much you're really owning your sin before God, wouldn't it? I know it's not fun. It's not meant to be. Uh, It's always humiliating in some sense, and that's why we don't want to do it. But it's good for us, and it's the only path to true freedom from shame. And so many Christians have found it helpful over the ages, to confess in the presence of others, especially to those that they have wronged. Now, I'm not talking about confessional booths of the Catholic Church. You don't need to go and secretly confess your sins to a priest. Jesus is our priest. We go straight to God, uh, God the Father, through him. And I'm not encouraging people to jump up and share in, in the church gathering, listing off all their you know, secrets and, the, and things that they, you know, just for, to try and get attention from others. 
I'm just saying that if we truly want to own our sin before God and confess, seeking His forgiveness, then we should probably be willing to admit our failings to some of the mere fallen human beings around us, especially those that we have actually hurt. Otherwise, it may well be that we're actually still just attempting to hide our sin, even in the the midst of the rituals of confession and prayer. And I think that would be really sad. So true blessing is enjoying the gracious forgiveness of God, and it's only possible when we own our sin before God. That's what David's celebrating and sharing from his own experience. And so in light of all this, in verses 6 and 7, David naturally prays that others might find the same blessing and refuge in God that he has. If the only answer is in confessing our guilt before God and, and seeking his forgiveness, then he prays that all might choose this path and find the security that he has found. This wonderful security, it's pictured as being beyond the reach of flooding waters, being protected from trouble, hidden in God and his grace, surrounded with songs and shouts of deliverance. David celebrates this true blessing and invites us through his prayer to embrace it as well. Don't leave it too late. Let all the faithful pray to you, God, while you may be found. But it's not enough for David to subtly invite us to embrace this opportunity through his prayer. He turns his attention to us directly as readers, speaking to us, urging us to listen to his instruction uh, and warning us not to resist. From verse 8, he writes, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye on you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Now David's advice here, it's really quite short and sweet. In essence, it's to heed his invitation to pray to God while he may be found. Because, verse 10, many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in him. Now, it's different language from guilt and confession, but I think David's still making the same basic contrast and urging us to make the only good choice. Why doom yourself to the fate of the wicked when you can turn and trust in the Lord's gracious forgiveness and enjoy being surrounded by his unfailing love? But David urges us to heed the advice because he knows that all of us have an amazing ability to resist what is good for us. He knows from experience that we need urging, we need prodding. And so he urges us first by explaining that he offers his counsel with his eye on us, concerned for our well-being. This is not for his profit or his glory. He doesn't get anything out of, of us taking his advice. Listen to what I'm saying for your sake, explains David. And secondly, he urges us to respond by warning us not to be like a stubborn horse or mule. That has to be controlled and and forced where to go. Now, I'm sure I've quite literally called my children stubborn mules uh, at various times. It feels like a very um, appropriate phrase for stubborn children who just won't do what's good for them. But of course, it's not just kids, is it, who fall into the trap of being stubborn mules. And David is urging us because he knows how tempting it is, actually, especially for adults, to resist admitting our guilt 
confessing our sin and weakness before God and others. And you may well be caught in this right now, stubbornly refusing to admit, even to yourself, that you're in the wrong about something and that that you have sinned, that you have failed. Your pride keeps knocking back that call to confess and to make yourself vulnerable. But that pride, that pride can kill you in the end. That pride will cripple your spiritual life, perhaps your emotional life, perhaps even your physical well-being at some point. Either that, or as I said, it will cause you to sear your conscience as you hold on to your sin so that you pay the price for it on that day when we are finally exposed for who we really are, whether we like it or not. So don't be like the horse or the mule that has no understanding, has to be dragged to the water. Set aside your pride, acknowledge your sin, throw yourself on the mercy of God. And in case this is not clear already, this invitation and this warning, it's for all of us, whether or not you are already a Christian. The psalm is talking about the need to confess and seek God's forgiveness for the first time, if you've never done that, and that ongoing reality of confessing our sin to our Heavenly Father as His forgiven children. If you've never confessed your sin, if you've never come to that point of seeking forgiveness from God, please don't ignore the invitation. Please don't ignore the urging of this psalm. Uh, Be encouraged by Alex's example and his baptism today to embrace the forgiveness that that is on offer in Christ. And um, please do talk to me after the service if you have any questions about what that means for you personally. But for those of us who have been following Jesus for years, the invitation and the warning is essentially the same, isn't it? Don't hide your sin. Bring it to God. Own it. Confess it. Seek his forgiveness. Continue to embrace the righteousness that we are offered in Christ by faith. See, being God's forgiven children means being people who continue to come before God, humbly confessing our sin, rather than hiding it from him, trusting in his mercy and not our own inherent goodness. So let's hear the invitation and the challenge of Psalm 32 together. Amidst the constant pull to seek and celebrate blessing in comfort and pleasure and all the sorts of things that are in this world. Let's remember the profound blessing of having our sins forgiven, covered over, wiped away by God, being known for who we really are, warts and all, and yet having our failings covered over, our transgressions not held against us. Don't lose sight of how good, how precious that is. And remember that it can only be achieved by humbly and openly acknowledging our sin for what it really is before God, throwing ourselves on his mercy again and again. Let's resist that urge to to hide ourselves and to settle for a false security and acceptance and instead seek and celebrate the true freedom and blessing of being forgiven sinners. Enjoy fellowship with God by confessing before him before your brothers and sisters in Christ where necessary, and entrusting yourself to his grace. Let's pray and ask God's help to do that now. Lord God, we do thank you that we can come to you knowing that you have arms open wide, ready to forgive, that we do not need to hide ourselves, 
to pretend we are something that we are not, but we can come to you humbly, admitting our failings, and accept your generous, amazing grace. And we just pray for your help to do that. Wherever we might be at personally, whether that's for the first time, really coming to that point of admitting our need for your forgiveness, or whether it's after 70 years of following you and struggling with sin and the, and the, the frustration of it, we pray that we might continue to come before you gladly accepting and enjoying your grace and forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.